Hey, y'all. Welcome to the uh, first installment of Talk About It Thursday. That's right. Today is Thursday uh, inside of the Black People Parenting Group. So we're going to talk about some things. This is uh, something that we decided to start doing for folks within the group, just because I think that it's important for us to have certain conversations. I think it's important to uh, just be able to discuss things. A lot of things in our community, within our culture, uh, we don't discuss uh, enough. We don't discuss a lot, but I think this is a very important discussion. Uh, March is Self-Harm Awareness Month, and I think it's important that we bring some folks onto the show who can have conversations about self-harm and about the importance of uh, mental health issues and things like that. So I am going to bring my two distinguished, very distinguished guests uh, up to the stage. I'll let them introduce themselves, tell you who they are and what they do. Let's start. Ladies first, of course, Miss Dana Dixon. Hey, Dana. Hi, Colin. How are you? Oh, Colin. Um, my name is Dana Dixon. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm based out of Norfolk, Virginia. Um, I primarily work with teens and young adults. I have worked with um, some teens who self-harm and who have suicidal ideations, we call them suicidal thoughts. Um, and so my background is primarily um, the, the group that we're talking about today. So I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dope, dope, dope. Thanks for joining us, 757 Stand Up. This is like a 757 full circle type of moment. Just, you know, Colin is not necessarily from the 757, but he definitely has roots planted in Hampton Road. So this That's is right. definitely a 757 moment. Uh, so I'm glad to have both of you here. So let's talk to my good brother, Colin Adams, who was a great friend of mine, also an elder at my church and just a just an all around good brother, man. And, and I love having conversations and being able to dialogue with him and have him uh, on this panel with us. So Colin, go ahead and tell them who you are and what you do, sir. Sure. Appreciate it, good brother. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. I'm Colin Adams. Uh, I am an, uh, I'm a uh, assistant professor of psychology. I teach at uh, Augustus University, uh, one of the HBCUs here in uh, Raleigh, uh, located in downtown Raleigh. Uh, I've been teaching psychology for about 10 years. Uh, prior to that, my uh, training has been in school psychology and criminal justice. So I had a chance to work in various settings that have been very uh, enriching. Uh, worked in family counseling, worked in juvenile justice, and We've even worked in a uh, juvenile uh, facility as well. So uh, I've had quite a few experiences with uh, some of the things that we're gonna talk about tonight. And uh, of course, as I mentioned, the past 10 years I've given myself to teaching the next generation and uh, preparing them for careers in uh, psychology. Uh, so excited to be here, very passionate about some of the things we're gonna talk about tonight. Thank you again, uh, my brother. Dope. So let, let me say this. I think it, it's important to, to, to state that, you know, I started this conversation. I wanted to have this conversation kind of based off of uh, a video that Colin posted on Instagram. Colin posted a video on Instagram. Uh, what was it last week, Colin, a week or so ago? Yeah, I think it was last week. Yeah, early yeah. last week. And I, and, I, and I saw the video and the video, it touched me um, to my core. Like it, it literally shook me to my core watching the video. Um, just simply because this is an issue that a lot of us don't talk about. It's an issue that a lot of folks are dealing with, but the the, the conversation a lot of times remains kind of hidden and it remains uh, under the surface. So th this was probably the first time that I've seen uh, a person of color have this type of moment, you know, the type of moment that Colin was having. And Colin, if, if, if it's okay with you, I would like to share uh, the Instagram post. Is that okay? 
Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let, let me see if I can pull it up. I didn't think about doing this until just now, y'all. So so bear with me for one uh on momento por favor, as they would say. Um, I'm going to share my screen and then we'll go to um Colin's video. Y'all let me know if you can hear this also. Okay, if you can't hear it, let me know. It might give me a little bit of trouble. Can y'all hear that? No. I can't hear it. Okay, hold on one second. Okay, it's not gonna let me play the audio. I apologize, y'all. Okay, no sweat. But we'll go to go to Colin's Instagram page, y'all. It's at Colin C O L I N Blake B L A K E uh, Adams. And go to that Instagram page, and there's maybe like one post maybe before it. Um, and go to that and click on that video. But Colin, give us give us just a synopsis of uh, what was going on in that video and what you were saying in the video, because March is self harm and self harm awareness and uh, injury month. So give us an idea of what you were saying in that video uh, and and why you felt the need to to bring this to the forefront. Sure, sure. So. Um, one of the things, you know, especially, you know, as you've already alluded to, um, I think that, you know, for far too long, right, far too long. And, I, and the interesting thing is that I think each of us probably have our own experiences with what I'm getting ready to say. Uh, but I think that, that far too long issues associated with mental illness um, has been a bit of a, a stigma. Uh, it's been stigmatized. It's been kind of like the, uh, the hidden kind of experience in the black community, especially the black family. Uh, a good friend of mine named Marisha Mathis, and just a bit of a shameless plug, but I think it's, it's relevant, uh, just wrote a book uh, called Big Mama, uh, Big Mama Was Wrong. And uh, in the book, she's talking about how, you know, the, the big mama, the classic Medea kind of figure, you know, who, uh, you know, let's just pray about it. You know, let's what goes on in the house stays in the house, right? I, I think that in some ways shelters us, right, from being real and, you know, being real and transparent about what our experiences are, right? So. Um, what I wanted to do was, of course, with March being Self-Harm Awareness Month, um, I just wanted to just put something out there, you know, um, really had no expectations, just, you know, hey, you know, first time I actually actually had even recorded myself. And I just said, you know, let me just let me just throw something out there, just put this out there. And, and ultimately, it was to encourage uh, black people to be transparent, right, and to be real about how they're feeling, right, and to be aware of what may be happening in their home, particularly dealing with young people and uh, just the madness that this COVID season has been. So just wanted to encourage us to be, uh, to, to do the work, right? To be conscious, to be aware and to be uh, transparent about how we're feeling. Okay. So so Dana, let me talk to you. Let, let's come up with a definition. If you could help us define, because some people don't know. And if y'all have questions, if you have comments, feel free um, to drop your questions and your comments in the comment box. Uh, but Dana, tell me this, what is um, self-harm and self-injury uh, and why is this month uh, of awareness important? So I'll be honest with you. I did not know that March was self-harm awareness month. I'm a cl licensed clinical social worker. So I knew that March was social worker month. And then when you... Um, posted about this and and started, you know, we started talking about it. I said, wow, I, di I didn't even know. Um, but self-harm is an unhealthy way to manage your feelings. Um, that is the most non-judgmental definition 
that that's out there. Self-harm is an unhealthy coping strategy. Mm-hmm. So when you are experiencing extreme emotional dysregulation and have an inability to express that or manage that, then self-harm te- is, is one of the ways people do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I liken it and compare it to um, substance abuse, for mm-hmm. example, because mm-hmm. oftentimes people use drugs or alcohol to deal with their problems or their emotions. And that's what people who self-injure do. They're yeah. using it to deal with their problems and emotions. Right. So and I'll ask both of you this. Why do you think people do it? Why do you think people self-harm? Why, do, you know, at its core, you know, and more of a, um, a, a baseline level, why do you think people engage in self-harm and self-injury? Colin, what do you think? Yeah, so, so I think uh, Dana made a really uh, good point. Um, I think self-harm, you know, in, in the comments she made about, you know, likening it to substance abuse, right? Substance abuse is an unhealthy, unhealthy coping mechanism, right? So uh, if, I'm, if, if, if I'm especially, you know, a, a teenager, right, who tend to be at like higher risk for this kind of things, you know, if, if I'm a teenager, I have, I have low, you know, emotion regulation, I don't know what to do with my frustration, my anger, uh, than cutting, you know, or, or any other thing, whether it be burning or, you know, pulling of hair or whatever, um, in, any action that would cause harm could be my way to respond to how I'm feeling. Yeah. Dana, what do you think? I will add to that, um, that it it is sometimes a, a sense of control. Um, when you don't have control of your environment or your circumstances, you can control your level of pain in that mm. way. Um, it does not always make sense to a person who d- obviously doesn't do it, but it can be a sense of control. It can be a way to feel something. So some teens and young adults who say they feel numb, self-injuring allows them to feel pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Piggyback off of also what Colin said, sometimes self-injury is um, to release so you're so built up with emotion and you haven't felt, you know, figured out a way to express it. So self-injury allows you to release. Um, there's lots of different reasons, but most of the time it is, it is you're able to trace it directly back to the emotion mm-hmm. that you're unable to control or manage. Yeah. And I was I was looking at some statistics and according to um, some statistics that I found online, over 17 percent of teens that were surveyed, 17 percent said that they had engaged in self-harming behavior. Eleven uh, percent of males said they had engaged in self-harming behavior and around 24 percent of females said that they had engaged in self-harming behavior. So, Dana, I'll ask you, uh, why do you think that girls are more prone to engage in self-harming behaviors than boys are? I would say it might go back to the emotion, um, the emotional dysregulation and having so many emotions um, as a young woman. Um, I, I have seen in my experience working with youth just as many boys self-injure. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That wouldn't have uh, stuck out to me as it's more girls than boys. Um, on my caseload right now that I can think of, I I know just as many males as females that mm-hmm. have injured in the past. Um, so that might that might be a better question for Colin, being in academia. If there's mm-hmm. been 
statistics out there, but I would say just having that extreme emotional dysregulation, not knowing how to cope with it. Um, also the pressures of social media, peers, mm -hmm. um, those all of those relationships are difficult for young girls to manage. There's there's um, a lot of pressure to be perfect, um, and so and that's whether that's self imposed. You know, sometimes that pressure is not coming from anywhere but from within. Within, right? Yeah. So right. I would I would attribute it to those things. Colin, what you think? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think statistics are good. Right. Because it, you know, in many ways, it, it'll give us like a broad picture. Um, but then I think, you know, one of the things with, with statistics is that, you know, there's a there's a context right to statistics that I don't that I don't think, you know, often gets kind of, you know, discussed. So, um, you know, Dana, who's in the field. Right. And, you know, is seeing this, you know, face to face, treating it. Right. Um, you know, she's giving you like this real play by play, you know, real time, like I'm seeing just as many boys as girls. Right. Mm -hmm. um, statistics, you know, tends to rely on whatever kind of metric or, or reporting system they may have mm -hmm. uh, where, where it could just be that, you know, you know, like we know guys, the, like, you know, we, we, you know, we're not talking about this on a massive, you know, on, on, a, on a kind of, you know, broad spectrum, you know, right. we're not, we're not sharing, we're not talking. Right. So, you know, and, and especially with, with self-harm, self-injury being something that tends to be, you know, initially kind of like a hidden experience, right? That, you know, is in some cases, you know, kind of like caught rather than told, if you will, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in those kind of situations, you're, you're going to much less encounter, you know, boys who are reporting or admitting that it's happening. So uh, you just said something, and I want you to unpack it, Colin, when you said caught more than told. Unpack mm -hmm. that for me and, and and for those who are watching, because I think that's that's very important. And I don't want that to go over anyone's head caught rather than told. What does that mean? Yeah. So so especially in the black community. Right. So we you know, when when we hear things like self-harm, you know, or, and I, I don't know who's watching, but I just got to be real. You know, in the black community, our initial response is, man, that, that's 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 for white people. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's that's white people stuff. That's white folks stuff. we don't do mm -hmm. that. Right. So um, whatever the signs may be. You know, whether it's like helplessness, hopelessness, right? If, you know, your child is wearing a hoodie and it's 90 degrees outside, you know, mm -hmm. we just think mm -hmm. like, oh, they, they just like rocking hoodies in the summer, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily caught if we aren't necessarily looking for the signs or aware of the signs, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, and and it's not necessarily something that is told, if you will, you know, as, as Dana's mentioning, right, you know, uh, sometimes the harm can be to communicate, right? So in some cases, right, it may be a parent that's, that's like, you know, catching it, right, on accident, if you will. You know, um, there, there's, I don't know, blood somewhere on a shirt or, or, or in a bed on a sheet or something like that. Or, you know, you find something in the bathroom and then it becomes like this kind of confrontational thing, like what's going on? Mm -hmm. And then it comes out. Right. So so caught rather than told, but because there's a kind of shame associated with the cutting. Right. I mean, who, who, who would want to confess that, you know, mm -hmm, that, that uh -huh. this, you know, so um, so when I say caught, not intentionally caught, but maybe accidentally kind of stumbled upon through possibly even confrontation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Uh, there's a question that came through in the chat. And like I said, y'all feel free to drop your questions in the chat. The purpose of this conversation is to uh, is to help us because I know that there are some folks that are dealing with these things. There's no shame. Again, this is the Black People Parenting Group. 
You know, we lean on each other for all things when it comes to laughing at memes and, and, and sharing all sorts of different things. So let's lean on each other now uh, in this time, because a lot of our children are in crisis. And uh, for us, like Colin said, in our community, it's been so taboo to talk about it. So someone uh, posed a question. So is it a way to physically feel what you're mentally feeling? So I guess they're asking, is the, is the self-harm, is it a way to physically feel what the, on the outside what the person is feeling on the inside? Dana, what you think? Absolutely, it can be. For some people, it is a way to to physically feel and, and be able to associate a name um, or, an, or a physical feeling to what you're mentally feeling. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, ang we use the term anger a lot with, with our, our youth because sometimes they don't have the more extensive vocabulary or emotional intelligence to go beyond happy, mad, sad, um, basic emotions. And so anger, anger inward um, looks like depression and can be self-injurious behaviors, that anger mm -hmm. directed in, internally or toward ourselves. Anger outward tends to look like aggression, um, that fighting or uh, um, violence, any sort of, of aggressive behavior. So mm -hmm. yes, it can be a way to physically feel what you're mentally feeling. It can also be a way to express what you are mentally feeling. Um, so it's, it's a physical, action manifesting what you're mentally and internally um, experiencing. Good. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 definitely. Colin, you got anything to add to that point? No, no, no. I mean, spot on. Nothing to yeah. add. Okay. All right. So so my, my next question, and as the comments are coming in in the, um, in the comment section, y'all, I'm going to ask them uh, in the order that they come in. I see another question just came in, but feel free just to shoot, keep shooting us your comments. We'll be sure we get all of your questions answered because this is very important. Um, and I want to be sure that all of these questions get answered. So be sure to drop your comments and your questions in the comment section. Uh, next question for uh, for Colin: uh, What are some 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 of the risk factors um, for self harm and injury? Yeah. So great, great question. Great question. So um, so I, I think this is important to to note right before I even speak a little bit. Um, self harm, self injury is is not a mental illness itself, right? So. Uh, let's be clear about that, right? Self-injury, self-harm is not a mental illness, right? So um, ultimately what we kind of see um, is that self-harm, self-injury is something that's commonly happening across the board with other mental illnesses, right? With actual mental illnesses. So for example, um, anxiety, uh, depression, um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Uh, self-harm and, and self-injury has been often related to trauma, right? PTSD is uh, a response to a traumatic event, right? So some of the risk factors would, would, would be um, certain mental illnesses in and of themselves, right? Uh, there are certain elements such as hopelessness, helplessness, um, there is, you know, the low, and you've heard this before, low emotion regulation, right? Not able to control uh, your emotions, right? Uh, no coping, right? Skills, no coping, at, no, you know, no activities, no, you know, things like that. So those would be some of the risk factors. Now, of course, we can go into the gender conversation, but again, you know, there's context to that, right? So stats would say that, well, females are more at risk. You're hearing from a practitioner that's saying she's seen just as many males as females, right? Um, we can even talk about uh, a certain kind of ethnic disposition, right? There's context to that as well, right? Some will say that African-Americans are more prone 
Um, you know, so so again, right, there's context there, but ultimately you will see self-harm along with other um, mental illnesses, right? Such as depression, et cetera, et cetera. And definitely low low coping skills, low emotion regulation. Dana, what did you, right, go ahead, Dion. Well, I, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, before we go to Dana real quick, I just wanna ask you something. How can we teach, because as a parent, this is a teaching moment for a lot of us. How can we teach coping skills? Because as we know, this generation is totally different from our generation, right? They're, they're, they're built differently. They have more things uh, at their disposal. Uh, how can we teach coping? What are some strategies that we as parents can use to teach our young people how to cope with, with loss, with trauma, with, with COVID? We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but just what are some strategies? And I, want to, I want both of y'all to kind of touch on this, but what are some strategies that we can use to teach our young people how to cope? Well, I have two major, my main ones. First, your relationship is your greatest asset. That's my philosophy as a therapist and my philosophy as a mom. Um, my relationship with my children is my greatest tool to help them um, deal with any challenges that they have, giving them a safe space to express themselves, to be themselves, and to talk about how they're feeling. That doesn't mean they get to disrespect me. And I know that's a, that's often a conflict you know, for Black parents is, how much do I want to hear from my children before they're t they're crossing the line with respect? Be seen but, and not heard. Exactly. And some 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 parenting out of with the idea that they should fear me, but honestly speaking, that creates a divide where you don't know as much going on with your children as you would um, without you know entering in other parenting concepts like helicopter parenting, for example, where you're hovering and, and your, ch your children have zero privacy. Um, so it doesn't allow them to learn how to cope. Um, and the second thing would be modeling. Mm -hmm. So if I model emotional regulation and I model taking care of myself and wellness, um, then they learn that because they see me do it. Um, I have a friend of mine um, she actually made these earrings. She, um, her, she posted a picture of her daughter meditating. Her daughter's three or four, four. She posted a picture of her, you know, sitting still closed eyes. And it was like, it was perfect because she learned that from somewhere mm -hmm. and most likely it started at home. So I think those are two very great strategies to teaching your children how to cope. Mm -hmm. Colin, what do you think? Yeah, so Dana said what I was going to say. Modeling, uh, I'm 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 big on modeling, um, modeling and social learning, right? That, that people just tend to learn from social cues, you know, things in their environment, you know, especially with children, their immediate environment is their home. So, yeah. uh, just kind of piggyback off what Dana said, you know, I have you know six year old twins, and um, one of the things that, especially my son, you know, uh, one of the things that that I'm very, um, very serious about is being able to demonstrate uh, tone, right? Respectful language, respectful speech. Mm -hmm. um, and to a point to when, you know, even, even when I'm off, right? Or when I'm speaking out of frustration or out of anger, uh, they're able to pick up on it, right? Because I'm, I'm trying my hardest. Now, of course, we're parents, right? And, you know, we there are just times where it's just hard to regulate ourselves, but ultimately, um, understanding that there are younger people watching, right? I, I remember like sitting right here in my office, I've, I've been teaching from here because of COVID. And I just remember being here one day and, you know, I've got a chair right here. You know, my son is sitting right there in the chair. 
And, uh, you know, I just, my neck got a little stiff and I just started stretching my neck, you know, and then I just look out the corner of my eye and he's, he's stretching his neck, you know, um, you know, times where I'm praying in the morning, you know, having my time for, you know, uh, for focus and devotion. And he's like, daddy, can I pray with you? You know? So, um, back to what Dana said, right. Modeling, um, coping ourselves, right. Ultimately teaches on appropriate behavior. You know, I, uh, I hate the phrase, do as I say, not as I do. I hate that, right? Because I, I think that's one of those lies that Big Mama told, right? Going Absolutely. back to, my, you know, I'm going to do exactly what you say and what you do, right? So let's let's model what's healthy and what's appropriate. Yeah, 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 I agree. That's good. I would also add, you know, helping your child figure out their interests. Um, their, what are they good at? What do they like to do? Because oftentimes for kids, coping strategies are very practical, very hands-on. And so they're teaching them, you know, you can exercise to manage your stress or to to feel better. You can journal to feel better. Um, actually practicing it and exploring it and, and saying, hey, let's try this. Okay, that didn't work. Um, let's try, you know, let's move on to the next thing. So um, using their their interests and their talents are are probably two practical strategies too for for coping. Yeah, definitely. So so Colin, on the on the collegiate level, I want to ask you because a lot of us are at a point where we are uh if our children aren't in college, they are uh going to be in college in the near future and coming up in the next I would probably say 12 to 18 months, Lord willing, we will all all be somewhat back to a sense of normalcy. Uh kids will be back in college, but you know, these kids are going to be going back to school in a totally different mind frame than they were last year this time. Right. We we, we, we stepped into COVID uh, about a year ago this month. Right. Um, but these these kids are going back to school. They're entering college. They're entering this new phase of their lives uh, in a totally different space. And the way they enter it is going to be totally different than they would if COVID never existed. Right. Because a lot of them are, are, are being schooled virtually now in high school and um you know, there's a lot going on. So just on the collegiate, collegiate level, uh, Colin, I want to know what has your experience been uh, with 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 self-harm and with mental health and how are you handling it as a uh, as a professor and as someone who has to actually deal with these young folks um, on, a, on a daily basis? Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the one of the beauties of uh, teaching in HBCU um, but but also one of the beauties of teaching at a small school, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, faculty and staff have an access, right? A level of access to students that larger institutions don't have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the, the HBCU factor, right? There tends to be this, this kind of empathy that's there that may not be on other campuses, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I work with people, y'all, you know, where... If, if a student is missing class, I, I got colleagues who are going to go to the dorm and knock on the door. You know, where, where have you been? Right. Get out. You know, let's go. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's important, though, right, because part of our role and, and I've, I've been I've realized this more and more and more over the years is, you know, we're not just there to teach. We're there to shape. Right. We're there to, to shape the next generation, to shape young adults. And a lot of that work is not in the classroom. It's, it's in the office. It's, it's, it's on the yard, you know, it's, it's connecting with them on a personal level. And, you know, me being a person who has some training, you know, I, uh, I'm i always watching, you know, I'm, I, I know when they're off. I'm always watching, you know, 
um, if, if, if a student, right, is, you know, is, is off just a little bit, whatever that looks like, right, they're, they're typically upbeat in this day, they're way, way off, right, down, not speaking, head down, hoodie on, whatever it is, right, something's wrong, something's off. I'm going to automatically bring that student to my office and we're going to talk one-on-one, right? Tell, tell me about what you're feeling. Tell me what's going on, right? Talk to me. And uh, tears, right? All kinds of confession, all kinds of things are being shared with me in the office, right? Um, part of my role is to connect with them on that personal level, but also to refer them for services, right? Um, across the nation, you're going to have counseling centers on campus, right? St. Aug, we have one, Counseling and Psychological Services. We call it CAPS for short, right? Um, I can't tell you the number of students that I've had to refer, right, to CAPS for treatment over the past several years. Now, COVID is a little bit different because we're not directly interacting, but I'm still watching and I'm still, you know, giving support. Um, but, but ultimately, I'm looking for the signs. I'm getting to know them on a personal level. And I'm referring. Now, here's the other thing, right? So I, I, I think back to a student who had a scar, a fresh scar on her neck. She had just cut herself within the previous couple of days before class, right? And it was the relationship that I had with her that made her comfortable to even share that with me. Plus, I'm watching, right? Plus, I'm looking, right? Um, you know, you're in my office. I might even be looking at your arms. I might be looking for any sign I can see, you know? Um, but then I'm not just calling and saying, hey, I'm sending a student over there, right? I'm getting my behind out of my office and I'm walking them across campus to the center to make sure that they go. And I'm staying there to make sure that they're seen because, again, they might walk out, right? There's a stigma about going to get that treatment on college campuses, especially a small one. I don't want people thinking I'm quote unquote crazy. I hate that word, but that's what I hear. So I'm doing all that I can to ensure that they're getting the help and the support that they're needing. Yeah. Dana, what you think? Well, I agree. It's it's identification. And it sounds like what Colin's saying is through relationship, because mm -hmm. I know because I'm paying attention to you and what's typical of you and what I'm seeing that's not typical of you now. But then the follow up. So um, when I have teens that come into my office and, and I've been seeing them for you know X amount of time and, and then it's discovered, it's disclosed that they have self-injured, uh, we have to come up with a safety plan for that. We are not, you know, I can't just see you for an hour every Thursday and then send you home without a safety plan and, and make sure that you're going to be safe. Mm -hmm. um, and I tell my teens, you know, I don't tell parents how to parent, but, you know, I also um, have to make sure that you're safe. So I'm, you know, the parent is, has got to know essentially yeah. if I'm sending them home so that they can make sure things like knives are kept locked up mm -hmm. or. Um, that there's no other sharp objects in the bathroom or that the child's, you know, they can take their shower alone, but if they're in there for a while, you might want to check on them and make sure mm -hmm. that they're okay. So strategies like that, you, you want to support their system because this person is experiencing something that's causing them to self-harm. You don't want to just leave them alone to deal with it or say, Hey, I, I got you some help. So now, you know, hands off. And I, I think parents should be empowered to do that and to advocate for their children's needs. But then anybody else who comes in contact with with um, youth or young adults who are experiencing this, how can we support them as a unit, as a community? 
Mm-hmm. You, you, Dana, you and Colin both said two things that really brought thoughts to my mind. Colin, you said stigma. Uh, Dana, you said strategy, right? Uh, and, and, and at some point, we have to find a way for these two things to kind of coexist, right? We have to recognize the stigma, and then we also have to come up with a strategy, right? We have to recognize that this stigma that Big Mama and, and, and the folks that are our elders and our ancestors and all these people that came before us, uh, they are the ones who put this stigma in our mind. Like Colin said, Big Mama, Big Mama lied, right? She lied to us. Um, <laughs> So now we have to come up with a strategy to combat that. And I think this question that we have is really great. Uh, how can we help them to not be ashamed and to open up so that we can help them? You know, Danny, you talked about your relationships. Um, are there any other strategies that we can put into place to uh, uh, to eliminate that stigma that's in place, right? And and, and help them when it comes to being uh, ashamed and, and, and understanding that, you know, in this day and time that we're in, like this is somewhat of, the norm. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to to get out there and, and, and let folks know that you're struggling with certain issues. So, uh, Dan, I'll throw this one to you. Uh, what are some things, some other strategies that we can put in place uh, that can help them through? So it wasn't long ago, I've seen a couple of posts in um, the, the Black People Parenting Facebook group about being vulnerable and apologizing to your children. And that is something that I would start with is express that vulnerability with with your family, with your children. That's a strategy that gets them to know, hey, everybody experiences lows or everybody experiences anxieties. That's that's normal. Um, the same way you would teach your child how to deal with uh, losing at a sport. Hopefully we're teaching our children how to lose. Um, then you would also teach them to deal with you know, a breakup or um, to deal with any a bad grade, you modeling it is going to be your strategy and then um, creating the safe space. So it's not a, what are you doing? We're not attacking the, the, um, the person. We are concerned about the behavior. How are you feeling? What are you feeling before that, that um, before you did this? Um, what were you thinking about before you did this? So, you know, not what would make you do something like this? You know, it's it's as much about what you say. So this is another strategy. It's, a, it's, a, it's as much about how you say it. So mm-hmm. those communication, um, communication strategies is another one. Yeah, so, and, and I, I think it's important um, to be proactive and not reactive, right? Because our reactive response is going to be, so what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Right. Why is this okay, right? But I think now as parents in 2021, we have to take a more proactive strategy and start talking with our young people about mental health to start, uh, like Colin said, taking those uh, those steps. If you see that they're wearing certain clothes, if you see that their behavior, their behavior is changing, uh, pulling them to the side and having these conversations, right? We have to do the things, we gotta do the work. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's you know, sad enough to say that a lot of us don't wanna do the work. Like we want to reap the benefits of, of, of being parents and, and 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 dress our kids up and have them look nice and do all of these nice things for them and, and get them the gifts at Christmas. But when it's time to do the work, a lot of us don't want to do the work. And I'll tell anybody, like being a parent is the hardest job I've ever had in my life. I've never done anything as hard as this. I've never done anything as hard as this right here. Um, and I don't think I ever will. So for us to, to see the change that we want to see we got to put in the work and the work starts with us playing 
uh, uh, offense instead of just trying to play defense, right? We trying to play defense and we trying to block the shot when it. No, we gotta we gotta get in front of this thing and we gotta play offense so we can kind of kind of maneuver. We can we gotta put points on the board <laughs> before the other team <laughs> before the other team blow us out of the water because they come <laughs> they they coming when them well, teenagers hit they coming. Well, and to that point, you said teenage years. I was just gonna say, this starts at birth. Yes, yes. You learn to get your needs met at birth. When mm-hmm. a baby cries because they're hungry or they need to be changed, that's human development. Mm-hmm. That's that's expressing a need. And so we respond as parents and we teach them how to cope from there. Mm-hmm. Um, teach your toddler to share. So you should also be teaching your young children how to communicate their emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I have friends joke, like you can tell your kid's a therapist kid, you know, I just don't know how to anger, handle my anger. My son mm-hmm. said mm-hmm. one day at like seven years old. And that's the truth. And that moment he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say, but mm-hmm. I'd rather him say that to me than to get in a fight at school yeah. and then get in trouble. Yeah. What are what are Colin? Let me know, and I want both of you to answer this because I think both of you all, all both of you have different perspectives. What are some of the um, conversation starters that we can have uh, with our young people to start talking with them about mental health? Because you know, as as, as teenagers, as young folks, there's not always an easy way into uh, hard conversations, and just as adults, right? So some of us, some of us struggle with having uh, those hard conversations. So what are some of the ways, Dana? You talk about relationships again. Um, and I, I think relationships boil down to being able to know, like, and trust somebody. Um, if you're looking at your parents, of course, you know them as a teenager. You, you know, depending on that, you might or might not like them, uh, um, but you got to trust them, and they they have to be able to trust you. Um, so, what are some of the ways that we can kind of start these conversations with our young people to kind of bring these uh, these topics to the forefront? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Uh, really good question. So. Um, Maybe think back, you know, a lot of my childhood. Right. So um, only child, no siblings whatsoever and uh, had the most loving parents. Y'all. I I mean, you know, I got a whole lot of love, a whole lot of fun uh, and a whole lot of discipline, too, because I had nobody else to blame it on. It was just me, you know, Uh, but but had a a great childhood. Um, What I didn't have was a lot of conversation. You know, Mm -hmm. they love crap out of me. Oh, they love me, you know, and, and they made it um, that the love and the empathy, the affection, right, set the tone for me to be able to share um, and talk about what's going on with me without judgment, without, you know, repercussion or labeling or whatever. But again, we weren't talking, right? So, you know, how, how does a teenager, you know, bring certain teenage kind of experiences to the table if we're not having those conversations? So I love the question. What's a good what's a good conversation starter? At the end of the day, and we're, we're starting this now. Right. I think Dana will be proud of me. Uh, my wife and I, we're starting this now where, you know, our kids are six. Now we've been doing this for a while. How was your day? All right. Tell me how your day was. Uh, something as simple as that. Right. I mean, that, that gets to the core of their school experience. Um, if something happened in school, right? Well, well, tell me, tell me more. You know, tell me more, right? Well, well, Colin, let me let me let me let me butt in for one quick second because I feel like when they get older, that how was your that how was your day and that all those those extensive answers they're going to give you, it's going to turn into good, fine, yeah, 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 okay. So 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 dig a little bit deeper for those of us who are um, 
I'm, I'm experiencing parenthood from the older side, where when our children are older, what do we do to combat that? That that um, and I think I know the answer to this. The answer is is not asking open-ended questions. Um, but above and beyond that, like what are some of the things that we can do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 I think so so coming back to like younger ages, um, as Dana was alluding to, right? Starting the expectation there, right? That that I'm interested, I'm concerned, I'm available, right? And and I'm going to ask, right? We're going to talk, right? The older we get, right, to your point. Uh, there's less conversation, and and I'm I'm scared that that's going to happen because I enjoy our conversations, right? I, I know it's going to happen. You know, I know it's going to happen. Hurt your feelings. Pray, pray for me. I got a, I got a few years, right? So, <laughs> um, but but I think that right for especially with teenagers, right, and and the hormones, the puberty, and and all of the storms that the teenage years are, um, I think that one you you, you can't make them engage. Right. So I think that with teenagers, that requires a certain level of consistency, right? Um, you know, open-ended questions, you know, they might share more, but they still might give you a closed-ended answer, you know? Um, but ultimately, I think there's a consistency that even teenagers want to see from their parents, right? To where you might get those one-word answers, right, today, but then tomorrow it might be something different. The next mm -hmm. week it might be something different. But ultimately, I, I think there's a consistency that they look for from parents, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and at the end of the day, you know, there's no, um, you know, there's not going to be like a one, two, three, right, kind of way to make your teenager talk, right, because they're teenagers, they're, they're, they're buttheads, right, between, you know, those years. Uh, but but I think there's a consistency that they desire to see from their parents, even if they're not talking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like it. I like it. Dana, what you think? In some ways, I'm sorry, let me say just one thing. In some okay. ways, um, and, and it, it may even feel parents feel even less, you know, empowered. Um, in, in some ways, right, teenagers are in a position, right, in their lives to where they kind of share on their own terms, right? Um, but the importance is knowing, hey, I can go to mom, I can go to dad, even if it's a week from now or two weeks from now. I can go to them and know that they're going to be there. I'm not going to be judged. They're not going to fuss me out, right? They're going to hear what I'm saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like it. I like it. But it hurt. It hurt. You, you feel like you lost your best friend sometimes. It hurts. I'm, I'm telling you, <laughs> just, just brace yourself, brother. <laughs> it hurts so bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got two therapists. Two, two, two people that can help me because that thing hurt, boy. I'm trying to tell you, man. Dana, what you think? Well, well to pick up where Colin left off, um, I think asking them, taking an invested interest in what's important to them. So um, one of the things I asked my, my son has different circles of friends. You know, he has his, he has school friends. He attends um, one school separate from his basketball team, for example. And so I asked him, you know, how are you guys getting along? Everything's fine. You know, well, well, tell me a little bit more, more about your friends and, and what game or what video game are you guys playing? And, and what, what are y'all talking about on the game? And so, no, he doesn't want to tell me everything, but he knows I'm interested. Mm -hmm. um, so conversation starters, two practical places are the dinner table, if you can. I know that's not that's not everybody's household. That's not everybody's routine right. to sit down and eat dinner together, but sharing any sort of a meal together. Um, my son and I used to go, Auntie Anne's was our thing. If I picked him up from school on a Friday, can we go to Auntie Anne's? We go to mm -hmm. Auntie Anne's. And I'm trying to pick his brain the whole way there right. and the whole way home. Um, and then a, an activity, a tangible activity. So one of my best friends crafts with her daughter. 
um, on the weekends, you know, if her husband has to work late or something like that, they sit down and they craft, they make things. Her daughter loves it. Great time to bring up conversation. Their defenses are lowered when they're doing something, mm -hmm. whether they are six or 26, their defenses are lowered. Um, so mentoring often, most mentoring statistics that you'll, that you'll read show that it's just that caring adult that is present and consistent. So if you be that, go shoot some hoops, go to the library, go craft, go get Auntie Anne's. You are creating opportunities to have these conversations and then little things come up. You know, if something comes on the radio and I hear my son listening to it and then I say, do you know what they're talking about? And he, most of the time he doesn't. But then that's a conversation starter. We can have the conversation about what they're talking about and what he's listening to. Mm -hmm. um, the other day I asked him about um, race. You know, we were having a, 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 a question about race and how it comes up in his school. And I said, you know, I'm sorry to ask you this right before you have to get out of the car, but tell me what your experience is like. And so just having that conversation, drawing it out, he has to know that I'm not judging him. And at the end of this conversation, no matter what he says, he's not going to be in trouble, regardless of if I'm concerned or we have to respond to it. He's not to be blamed for what's happening because he's still developing. Again, my son is 12. So. I will let you know how that's going. At <laughs> or go ahead, Colin. Yeah. So, so to, to piggyback off of Dana, uh, so so here's something that's really important that that I hope we're capturing. That, that I hope that we're capturing. Um, this takes effort, right? Got to do the work. Like effort, you know, mental, physical, spiritual energy, right? A whole lot of a whole lot of trying, a whole lot of praying, right? A, a, a whole lot of effort, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think what we, and again, I've got a six-year-old. I'm not at that point yet, right? So I, you know, I, I'm, God, I'm scared. But um, what I don't want, right, is to become um, numb to the kind of emotional kind of like shutdown of being a teenager, mm -hmm. uh, where I'm reacting with their silence with silence, right? So then we become almost like two strangers in the hallway. Hey, 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 how you doing? You know, good. Okay. All right. Bye. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, it almost appears to be, you know, disinterest um, and, and in a way, even possibly even diminishing what may be happening because I'm not even asking. So it takes effort. It takes effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to offer, too, is that one of the members early on in the Black People Parenting Group, maybe a couple of months ago, uh, one of the members had posted a card game and it's a card game of um, conversation starters that you can start with with your family. Uh, and it, that, that this particular company, if anybody wants to know, I'll just just shoot me a DM or shoot me a message and I will send it to you. Uh, I have it in our kitchen. Um, but and we played this game. You know what I mean? I was trying to get more conversation and figure out how we can connect with uh, each other more as a family. And I bought this card game. They sell it on Amazon. It was only maybe like 12, 13 bucks. And it has maybe 200 or so just questions. And everyone goes around and asks, you know, asks or answers a question. And that was a great way for us to uh, to sit down and converse and have conversations and just kind of open up and just, you know, talk about things that we may not have ever talked about before. Like, what was your favorite vacation or what's the best thing that ever happened to you at school or what? You know what I mean? Like, uh, what's the what's your favorite concert that you ever went to? Uh, those types of things that just build 
a rapport for you to be able to have those tougher conversations uh, down the line. So I think there are plenty of tools out there. I think, you know, we again, like Colin said, you, you, you have to put in the effort and you have to put in the work. And I think what we're doing in Black People Parenting uh, is great because if you don't know, then there's always that that that, that ability that you have to go in and, and, and ask somebody, like ask a question, you know, post a comment, like what are you all doing to engage with your children? What are you all doing to engage with your team? What are you doing uh, in COVID to, 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 to help them get out of this funk that they might be in? So uh, there are plenty of resources out there, but you just got to work for it. Uh, so next question, Dana, I'll pose this one to you. Uh, is there a difference? Because I think a lot of times people kind of get these two confused. Is there a difference between being suicidal and self-harming? Yes. Um, in fact, it's 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 completely separate. Usually um, self-injurious behaviors are not typically associated with an intention to die, while suicidal ideations, thoughts or gestures are with the intention to end your life. Um, so most most teens will have super what we call superficial cuts. They will not be in this if they're a cutter, if that's their form of self-injury, it will not be in a space that will cause them um, immediate serious damage. It will be maybe up up higher um, and it won't be deep. Um, but there is risk to that. Um, so I, I want to say that by adding, it's very easy for it to, to quickly become a very dangerous situation, which is why we address it um, pretty aggressively in the mental health world with safety planning and with creating um, a safe environment at home. So yes, it is a difference. Um, and most times self-injurious behaviors are not the same, they are not the same as suicidal thoughts. Now, I will also add, you can have both. You can be someone who has suicidal ideations and you can be someone who is self-harm, but typically the self-injurious behaviors are not an attempt at suicide. But the two can exist in the same space. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. That's important. Um, that's, that's very important to understand. Uh, I think it's important that we understand the difference between the two, but I think it's important that we understand that they can coexist. And you wanna add something else? Yes, the suicidal thoughts, such as helplessness, hopelessness, I don't know what else to do, I just don't want to be here anymore, is different from a plan as well. So again, we differentiate the two because of the levels of care that we want to offer them. Um, you would not necessarily hospitalize someone who has just had some helpless, hopeless, very dark thoughts but you would hospitalize someone who has a plan and can't promise you that they're not able to be safe. So I often, that's one strategy that I, that I use is ask my clients, so can we talk about a plan to keep you safe? And if clients aren't able to do that, that's concerning to me. I want them to be able to say, yes, I will ask for help if I have an urge to self-injure. So, okay. So as a parent, how can we, how, because children are smart, young people are smart, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and how can we tell from your experience, Dana, how can we tell when they are being truthful with us in these situations, right? Because you can ask a young person what their plans are, what their intentions are, and they can easily just tell you what you want to hear. 
Um, what are some ways, again, let's go back to strategies. What are some ways that we can strategize and come up with uh, plans to know that they're being truthful and being honest with us in this moment? So let's say I'm a parent and I'm being proactive. I'm not being reactive. I'm not, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I'm, I'm, I'm following all of the proper steps. But how do I know that this 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 young person isn't being um, dishonest with me about their intentions? So kids are smart, but there are a lot of changes in routines that they may not pick up on. Um, and I know that as a parent, I pay attention to you don't typically do that and you don't normally behave this way. So those that's why, you know, I said earlier, alluded to it, changes in behavior are really good telltale signs. Um, so my parents that I've worked with that have have children with self-injurious behaviors that that have abstained from it and have not engaged in that behavior in a while don't see them spending that extra time in the bathroom don't see them you know um, carrying certain sh sharp objects anymore they don't see them dressing the way you know. I've, I've known some people to say, well, they're finally showing their scars or they're, you know, finally wearing short sleeve shirts. And then they revert back to that. That's that's one way. Um, as Colin said earlier, if your child's never exhibited this before and you don't know it, honestly, apart from catching it, you you wouldn't be able to know just just off top. But if you know these signs and you know the behaviors in your children, then you can always pay attention to when that changes as a mm. parent. Mm. Mm. Good. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, again, the work comes in uh, being attentive, right? That's a part of the work and, and, and being able to identify these things when they happen, if they happen, uh, mm -hmm. being able to get in front of that bus before it comes and knocks you over because you want to be sure that you are doing everything in your power. And of course, we're living in a space where a lot of us like, you know, a lot of us parents like we got two jobs. We got three jobs. Right. We're trying to maintain the family. If I'm a, if I'm a single mother, then I got I may have more than than, than, than one child. I'm trying to balance family life. and I got to cook dinner and I got to take this child to daycare. And this child is in high school. So I think they're self-sufficient. I think they're able to handle these things on their own. But I may not necessarily know that they're battling with 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 with, with mental health issues. Right. I may not know that they're having these thoughts. So. For me, it's going to take a little bit more work. If I am that parent, it's going to take a little bit more work for me to put that effort in to say, hey, hold up, like, let me take a break. Like, let me take a step back and, mm -hmm. and, and give some attention to this child because there are some things that could be going on um, that I wouldn't think. Because again, as we said earlier, it's not something that we think happens to black folks, right? Typically, it's not an issue that we think comes up in the black community. It's not an issue that we think, our, oh, that's white folk stuff. So that's, that's the white kids, right? That's the rich white kids. They 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 handle that. They, they they do stuff like that. My kid, nah, it's totally different. It's totally different. So, Colin, I want you to kind of open up and talk to me about um, as 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 black parents specifically. What are some things that we can do to to prioritize mental health for our young people and kind of bring it to the forefront? Bring it to the forefront for them, and not just self harm, but just mental health as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I think it begins, you know, again, I think, you know, we need to stress, you know, more and more just the importance of communication, right? Um, conversation, you know, um, putting effort into having those conversations, right? Where we're, we're checking in, right? Where we're asking, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, that, that's communicating that there is a level of interest in how you are feeling, not necessarily just what you're doing, but how you're feeling, 
right? Um, but then at the same time, you know, it, it reciprocally, right? It's 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 communicating, right? That I'm interested in you, and at the same time, I'm interested in myself, right? So um, I'm sharing how I'm feeling, right? How my day is, right? Um, again, black, like we don't talk like this. We, we just we don't, you know, and. You know, and, and and I don't want to equate that with the lack of love or with the lack of care or nurture, but because again, you know, I'm from a black family, a black community, a black church, um, throughout my entire life that loved me, right? But we did not talk. <laughs> we just did not have these conversations. Um, so it comes back to the importance of conversation and communication, right? Now, one thing I will say, one thing I will say is that. Uh, this generation is seeing a lot of stuff that we didn't see, you know, eighties mm -hmm. um, and the nineties. I mean, they're seeing athletes, they're seeing actors, they're seeing all kinds of black celebrities that are being intentional about talking about their mental health, sharing that they're in therapy, that they're getting care and treatment. Right. Mm -hmm. We, we have like some of the most uh, masculine of examples of men, right. Who are being, who, like being transparent and vulnerable, right? Literally showing their lives to the world. Hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. So so they're at an advantage now because they're seeing it. But again, the most important resource is not what they're seeing. Is, is, is you know, in the world and in the environment, it's what they're seeing in the home, right? So it begins and it's going to end with that conversation. Um, you know, LeBron James isn't going to make my child go to therapy, right? No matter how much he talks about it. Right. But daddy, you know, daddy talking about it. Right. Uh, that's a little bit different. You know, so it's an intentional conversation. I believe that we as black families have to have. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I, I started going to therapy probably maybe about a year and a half ago, maybe about a year and a half ago. And, you know, as a black man, when I started going, I wasn't open to having conversations because, you know, we're raised that everybody don't need to know your business. Right. You don't need to tell everybody your business. Um, so when I started going and, and, and speaking with my therapist, there were certain things that I, you know, I didn't necessarily feel comfortable sharing with her. Now I love her to death. She's the greatest person in the world. But back then, you know, there were certain things and, you know, she could tell that there were things that I wouldn't like. She would ask me how I'm doing. I'll be like, you know, I'm straight. And she would ask me, like, well, 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 how, what, what does that mean? Like, I don't know what that means. You're straight. Like, unpack it for me. Mm -hmm. um, so so now when we have conversation and I tell her the struggles that I'm having as a parent. And it's so funny how some of the behaviors that my teen exhibits are the behaviors that I had, right? So when I say, well, you know, she does this and she does this and she did, well, she, she would say, well, that's pretty much the same thing that you do. And I was like, man. And, or she would say, well, I wonder where she get it from. And I was like, huh, so do I. I, I. But when I think about it, it's like it's almost a, a, a reflection of me. So now she she's got me to the point where I'm okay with opening up about how I feel and, and, and if I'm having a bad day to have a conversation with my family with my children like yeah I ain't, I ain't, I ain't just I just ain't doing it today like I'm I'm going I'm going through some things I don't I don't feel well today I don't feel like myself today um, and it's okay to have those conversations right and it's important for our young people to see like like both of you all said it's important for them to see us exhibit the behaviors that we want we want them to show right we have to be the the example for them and i think it's so important that in our mental health um and in our our, our wellness and our well-being that we are 
the change that we want to see, right? We want them to be able to speak up and to to control their emotions, but we gotta we, we gotta show it. Danny, you got something to add to that? Well, you you hit it on the head in terms of that reflection piece, and and I think that's where we as parents can use what we've learned by examining our own mental health or our own emotions. So I know what anxiety feels like. And if I see my son exhibiting behaviors, whether physical or emotional, or it, I can say, are you feeling anxious? Mm-hmm. You know, and then talk about what anxiety feels like mm-hmm. or what depression feels like. And we can both understand it better. And, and I hate to say bond over it, but he can see that yes, mom understands it because mom's experienced it. Mm-hmm. Or dad understands it because dad's experienced it. And it's all all forms of mental health. You know, ADHD is 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 definitely known to be hereditary. And a lot of times parents will say, Yep, just like me, you know, I couldn't I couldn't do this or I wasn't able to 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 keep this together. And just by acknowledging that and being able to identify with it in your child and then teach them how to recognize it in themselves then you take the step to learn to cope. So I often tell my clients, what is your, um, what are the physical responses to this emotion? How do you feel physically? What's going on around you? Um, what are the warning signs that you know, this is, this is what's coming or this is what's happening? I need to be able to identify it in myself as a parent, but then I can teach my child how to identify it in themselves. And if I don't feel like I'm equipped in that because, you know, this isn't everybody's cup of tea, this isn't everybody's expertise, then I'm going to get them somebody that they can talk to about it. It doesn't always have to be, you know, I think therapy is amazing. I'm a therapist, right? I think it, I think everybody can benefit from it. But sometimes it's just a mentor. It's somebody at church, you know, it's 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 some caring, it's a coach. It's a caring adult in their life that they can connect with. And and as parents, you know, it's, it's a certain level of humility too, um, to say maybe that's not me right now um, because maybe I have to work on some things in order to be a better support for my child. Yeah, go ahead, Colin. Yeah, so, so just Dana said something very important. Um, so the importance of, of recognizing what's happening, you know, with yourself, right? And being able to, in some ways, communicate that with the child, because again, right, there's there could be some experiences that are common, right? So I'm a bit of a case study for this, right? My father, uh, I, I remember um, walking into our kitchen, and I remember seeing my father laid out on the floor, right? Uh, he couldn't breathe, uh, very shallow breathing, right? And and this is, you know, Dana's comment about knowing the signs of anxiety really triggered this for me, so. Um, he was having a full-blown panic attack, right, on the floor. Now, I'm, I'm a teenager, right? I have no idea what this is. I don't know what's happening. Thought it was something cardiovascular, right? Very common kind of misunderstanding right between the two. Um, when I think about seeing my father, right, mm-hmm. wrestling with what we understand as anxiety, seeing him address his anxiety would have helped me address my own anxiety. Mm. Right mm-hmm. I'm in therapy now, uh, now, Dion. Right, I'm in therapy now um, because two years ago I suffered my third panic attack. Right, and and part of like coming to realize what's going on with me is like, okay, so I remember seeing my father on the floor, 
But what a powerful example that would have been for me to see my father addressing his issues, just like we are, Dia, right? And then empowering me to do the same, you know? Um, so so I just I just wanted to affirm, you know, what Dana said. So not, not only that, Colin, I want to take it a step deeper from, from what you and Dana just said a step further, because I think it's important that, number one, the reoccurring theme here is that Big Mama lied to us like that. I want to stick with that, right? So if we stay in that space, we have to understand that there are certain people that came before us in our lineage and our family that have struggled with mental health issues that was never addressed, right? I was raised by a single mother. My father was shot and killed when I was 11 years old. But what I do know about my father is that he, he suffered from alcohol abuse. He was a, uh, a substance abuser. And there were people on his side of the family who suffered from bipolar disorder, from schizophrenia, all of those things that were, was totally, totally untreated at that time, right? Growing up in the 70s and 80s, those things weren't treated. But when I hear stories about my aunt walking down Brambleton Avenue with no clothes on, having to be rescued by the police because she had gotten so high, she didn't know what, like, those type of things play, play a role in the way that my family functions down the line, right? So what we have to do as black folks, we have to take a deep dive into our family history, right? Because these young folks, they don't understand that some of these feelings that, that they're having are hereditary, right? Like Dana, you said like ADHD, those things are passed along, right? Those things are passed down from generation to generation. So is bipolar disorder, so is uh, uh, depression. So all of these mental health issues that so many of us are dealing with that are going untreated. So I think it's important that we touch on those things and touch on the history that our family has and look deep within, oh, that's just Uncle Pete. You know, he was crazy. He lived such and such and such. You know, he, he something was just wrong with him, right? Mm -hmm. Those are things that we've been dealing with. And, you know, and, and then, you know, to even go a little bit deeper, the, right? so we're from a traumatized people, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, we are born into a lineage of 400 plus years of trauma. Absolutely. Right? Like, you know, not to get too, too geeky, but I think it's relevant, right? There's been, you know, you, you, Dana mentioned about things like, you know, ADHD and, you know, how evidence to show that schizophrenia is, you know, hereditary, right? Um, there's been research out there about how trauma can leave its imprint upon us, right? Um, that, that in some ways that ultimately trauma does not change our DNA, but it can, it can actually leave a bit of an imprint on DNA, right? And mm. it actually, the studies didn't begin with us. It actually began with Jewish populations post-Holocaust, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. so, so then when you think about an enslaved people, right? 246 years on a plantation, right? In addition to another 100 plus years of Jim Crow, right? Segregation, right? Mm -hmm. In addition to another 50 years that we've been experiencing since the 60s, of, mm -hmm. uh, my gosh, mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We are a traumatized people, mm -hmm. right? Our communities are traumatized and there's a lot for us to address and we, we got to have these conversations. Dana, I'm sorry, you're going to say something. I'm sorry. No, it, it's to your point. I think that's one of the reasons it's been minimized. It's kind of like, what do you have to cry about? We're all dealing with it, right? And so because we as a people have been traumatized, then it then then we're all on the same page. And so you just suck it up, you pray it away, and you get back to work and you get back to 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 the grind. Um it's only in those extreme cases where it's like something's wrong with them, you know, and then we hide it, we don't talk about it because we're ashamed of it. And that usually comes from not understanding it. So to to both of your points, because you know it's it's 
for lack of a better term, trendy and, and celebrities are talking about it and people are, are more open to the idea of therapy and recognizing that maybe the reason that we didn't go is because we didn't see ourselves in our, in our therapists, that we, now we have spaces where we can connect with black mental health professionals. And so it's, it's opened this Pandora's box, so to speak, to be able to dive into these issues and we can talk about it. We can go back and recognize, oh, that, that looks familiar. I, I, I see that. And then we can also go forward and pass this legacy on where we're no longer going to keep it, you know, quiet as it's kept. That's, that's one of my mom's favorite terms, quiet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and it's so funny that Danny, you gave that example. I was, I was talking to uh, an elder uh, today actually, and, and, and they were talking about a situation that occurred at work and one of their coworkers uh, got upset and the coworker, the coworker was crying about something. And the person that I was talking to said just what you said. I, I told her she should just suck it up. And I'm thinking like, it's a little insensitive. Just, <laughs> just, just a little bit, like, just a little bit. But that's the mentality that a lot of people who are older than us um, kind of come from. Like there's no space for emotions. There's no space for, uh, especially not in the workplace. Like you, you come here to do a job. You, <laughs> you come here to grind and you, you go home. That's it. Right. <laughs> right. Don't, don't let them see you sweat. Nah, don't let don't let them see you sweat. You gotta work three yeah. times harder than everybody else. Like, mm-hmm. but the, I said, but the lady was crying though. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings up a good point about self harm and mental health in general is that we do have to validate our children's feelings. So it's not enough to just stand back and watch quietly and not judge. You also want to say, this is how you're feeling and that's okay. These are your emotions right now and that's okay. You you can't really cope with it if you haven't identified it. Right. And so validating your experience is important. Having empathy is important rather than just saying, well, suck it up or you'll get over it. You know, I, I say that when my son's mad about a chore, you'll be all right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can't necessarily do that when we're talking about mental health. You know, right. you don't want to wash the dishes. You'll be all right. But right. If you if you're having a serious problem, you want to make sure that that what they're experiencing is is made real to you as a parent. Mm-hmm. So they understand it as a child. Absolutely, definitely. Uh, y'all, leave some comments because this is some good stuff. Like somebody said, this is this is some good stuff. This is some good conversation. So feel free to leave your questions, uh, leave your comments. I just want to reset it just a little bit. We have uh, Dana Dixon. She's a licensed clinical uh, therapist. We have Colin Adams. He is a professor of psychology at St. Augs here in Raleigh, North Carolina. So we got some heavy hitters on this on this. Uh, on this call, y'all. So make sure you just leave com- uh, leave comments, leave questions, because we want to know how we can serve you, how we can help you in this space. Uh, so I'll ask Dana this, Dana, I'll ask you, uh, for those folks who have not considered it, what are some of the benefits of uh, therapy for young folks? I think all of us know what the benefits are because all of us are, uh, are in that space where we've experienced therapy. But what do you think for people who haven't considered it yet? Uh, what are some of the benefits of therapy for young folks? Um, I would say a safe space um, to express how you're feeling, to talk about what you're going through. It's an objective space. So this is an outside person, not someone who's connected to all the people that you're involved with or connected to your world. Legally and ethically, your um, conversations with your therapist are kept confidential. Um, So it's really um, 
It's really just this place where you can be yourself and you can process and you can grow. And a good therapist will also challenge you a little bit. You, you identify, you know, this is what I do with my clients. You identify what you want to do, what you want to see different, what, how you want to change, what your goals are. And then I support you in that. And if I see you kind of contradicting yourself, or maybe we've uncovered some patterns that you maybe didn't recognize because you were in it and I'm on the outside, then I get to to point that out to you and say, hey, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, is that where you want to be? And I think a lot of clients appreciate that, especially in our community. The vast majority of my clients are African American. Um, and they say they want someone who's going to talk back to them, who's going to challenge them a little bit. They want to see a black therapist. They want somebody who understands, you know, their culture and their background and the legacy um, that includes some trauma um, to our community. So I think if you are considering it, recognize that you you can find a therapist that fits you. Not every therapist fits everyone. So you can connect with them. I had a, um, a client black mom and daughter and mom wanted her to come to me because I'm black and this child did not connect with me. Um, and she was very much um, artsy and and had a whole lot of talent and skill in that area. And so I referred her to an art therapist that I knew and she blossomed with this therapist and you know just talked and was able to express herself. And I think that that is um, better than forcing you to be with one type of therapist. So again, back to the original question, you can find someone that you connect with. You can have a safe space to address how you're feeling, um, to share your thoughts. It's objective. Um, it's confidential. And and so that would be why I would go if I, w- if I hadn't been before. Yeah. And I, I think it's almost like putting pieces of a puzzle together, right? When you're talking about mental health of young folks, it's almost like putting the pieces like this piece fits right here, right? But this piece might not fit. Like you said, this particular uh, professional might not work, but there might be somebody over here who's perfect. And I know that from experience, right? Like everyone is not going to be the right fit, but you still, as Colin said before, you still have to put in the work. You can't say, oh, well, you know, she didn't do nothing with him. So, or with that person. So I'm just going to give up. Like you can't do that. Like you can't do that. You have to keep trying and you have to keep putting forth uh, the effort. So, Colin, let me ask you, what do you think are some of the benefits for um, uh, young people going to therapy? Yeah, I think there's two things. And, you know, Dana certainly mentioned one of them. Um, I, th- I think in, in one hand, there's a certain kind of self-discovery uh, that comes from therapy um, when, you know, you're put in position to explore things you don't know how to explain or that you don't even understand. Right. Um, to where, like you said, that the puzzle pieces start to come together, right? Certain connections are made. Um, you know, you start to see more of how family history and other things play into behavior, right? Like you, you get to connect some dots that you didn't even know should be connected. Um, so there's a bit of a self-discovery there, right? Which can lead to self-empowerment, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Empowering oneself, one's ability, one's potentialities, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, the other thing that I would say uh, is a benefit of therapy uh, for teenagers and for all is that it gives them like an objective party right? that's free of judgment um, to talk and to reflect back. And this is what uh, Dana had mentioned, right, to be just completely objective, uh, nothing invested more so than to see you grow and to see you live in a healthy way. 
Um, and, and I think that tends to, in some ways, even break down some of the walls of communication that might have um, existed with, you know, other conversations, if you will, right? That this is an objective third party. Agreed. So let me ask you this, uh, Colin, I'll come back to you on this one. Um, are there, especially for, for those of us, who, well, let, I'm sorry, let me, let, me, let, me, let me go back to another question I was going to ask. I'm sorry. Uh, is there a particular age that a parent should think about? Like, is anyone too young to go to therapy, right? Mm. You know that, 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 you know, you said you have six-year-olds, like, or if I have a parent of a, like a 10-year-old, will that be too young? Or what is the, what is the age limit that you all think would be good um, for a parent who is considering therapy for their children? Yeah, so I'm going to kick that one to Dana. I think she'd be best to, uh, to um, you know, answer that. But I will mm -hmm. say, so I uh, got a really good psychiatrist friend, and uh, she was doing uh, some training uh, at our church, right, uh, on mental health um, and mental illness, two different things, right? Um, and one of the questions was, and, and actually she was speaking specifically about depression. And uh, I, I don't know what made me ask the question, but, you know, she may have said something that just kind of, you know, got me thinking. And I asked her, what is the youngest person you've seen for depression? Right. Um, I've mentioned this in class and I've said, you know, give me some ages. You know, what, what are you thinking? Right. And some will say like six, seven, nine. She said two years old. Dion. Wow. She said two years old. We saw a two year old. Right. In a clinical setting. Right who was exhibiting signs of depression at two years old. Wow. Um, that, that's a level I can't explain, um, but you know, Dana, I'm sorry, I'm gonna kick that to you. Yeah, I, I, would, I would be concerned if we were not, we have to consider development and, and, and what is age appropriate. So I oftentimes get frustrated if my, you know, my three-year-old throws tantrums. Well, that's that's developmentally appropriate for a three-year-old, right? Um, so, to, to, as far as age range goes, you have to base it on the type of therapy, in my opinion. Um, I am not going to sit a six-year-old down and try to have an intellectual conversation about emotions and say, "What does it feel like?" You know, and and um, tell me tell me if your heart races and things like that. Um, I will play with a six-year-old though and give them toys and different costumes and, and an environment where they can talk about um, play and you can observe how they play and what sort of things do the dolls say to each other and play art therapy is another one, but how do they place these dolls in this sand tray or and and that's a special certification, um, a registered play therapist or a registered art therapist. But an art therapist also looks at what you're drawing and how you're drawing it and the positions of the people. So so at a young age, I would suggest more like art therapy or play therapy and progressively graduate towards um, talk therapy. Uh, probably around middle school is probably the, that's the youngest that I see where you can really have these intellectual conversations and help people to identify their emotions and effective coping strategies and process why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. Um, and then of course, as you, as you reach adulthood, there's other types of treatment based on your specific diagnosis. So um, there's EMDR, for example, for trauma. Um, so there's dialectical behavior therapy 
for um, for extreme emotional dysregulation that you often find with self-harm and um, is very common with people who have borderline personality disorder. Um, there's mindfulness practices for people with anxiety um, or depression. And, you know, so you base the type of treatment that you're getting on both the needs of the client, their individual diagnosis, as well as their developmental level and, and what's going to best help them succeed. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. Um, so we're, we're going to wrap up soon and I want to go back to, to coping strategies. So for anyone who didn't, who, um, who joined us late, I just want y'all to just go over coping strategies, um, for, uh, someone who is self-harming that, that they can actually use. So if anyone is watching this and they are, uh, self-harming themselves, uh, or they are connected with someone, what are some coping strategies that they can actually use today? Uh, some tangible things they can take away from here uh, to help them cope instead of uh, engaging in that self-harm. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. Um, so specific coping strategies for self-harm. I would say anything, start with anything that you could do with your hands. Um, but then also strategies for expressing the emotion. So if you want to journal, um, if you want to draw, you know, express yourself through art. Um, when I worked um, at a pediatric psych hospital, we encouraged um, writing songs or poetry, um, expressing yourself through music. Um, we, of course, one prevention strategy is removing sharp objects, but having that safety plan in place, knowing who you can call when um, you are feeling urges to self-injure, um, knowing what your um, what your support, who your support system is, um, and then again, self-injurious behaviors. It's tied to the emotion. So, what's going to change that emotion? If you're self-injuring because you're feeling anxious then what can you do to lower your anxiety? If you're self-injuring because you're angry, um, then what can you do to express that anger and address that anger? Um, there's everything from card games to exercise to you know cooking. I encourage a lot of mindfulness in working with my clients and mindfulness is, is an awareness of the here and now. It's being in the present. So anything that you can do that's gonna bring you back to this moment, if you wanna go cook and you're making salad and you're, you're counting how many cucumbers you cut up or you know you want to go color you know they have those adult coloring books now um that allows you to just focus on what you're doing right then and there and it becomes a distraction so to speak so there's lots of different ones my strategy for helping people come up with the right coping strategies goes back to what i said earlier what are you good at what do you like to do what helps calm you down what is a good distraction for you and that tends to be different for everyone. Um, but you got to get those lines of communication open to find out what's going to work best. I can deep breathe and help myself calm down. If I'm anxious, I can go, you know, lay across my bed and deep breathe and calm down. That might not work for everyone else. Um, some people journal, some people don't like to journal, you know, so it, it, some people garden, some people work out, exercise. My husband, he's a runner. He says it clears his head. Um, for me, I got to focus. I got to think hard when I run because I'm, I get tired much faster than he does. So that's, that's, um, that's the, the best way to go about identifying coping strategies. 
Good. Colin, any suggestions for you? Yeah, no. So I, I think I think there's a couple of themes that Dana's mentioning. You know, I, I think Dana's identifying like two things, right? One, um, skills and things that we already have and things that we're already doing that bring pleasure and give life, right? For lack of a better term. Um, and then secondly, right, the teaching of new skills, right? Things that they might, you know, find pleasure in that they never knew, such as breathing or you know, the gardening or things like that, right? So, but again, I think that comes back to um, the benefits of therapy or, or the benefits of seeking support from, um, you know, from elsewhere, right? Uh, these are things we wouldn't necessarily know if we're not seeking help and seeking support. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good. Final question. Um, as parents, what can we do if we think our children are engaging in self-harming behavior? Just as parents right now, if there's someone watching this who thinks that they might be uh, they might have a child who, who who is engaging. They don't know for sure. They haven't, you know, approached the child. But watching this has put some some thoughts into their mind. What can we do right now tonight, Colin? Yeah. So I, I would I, I'll, I'll say this right. So um, in in the world of psychology and you know counseling, social work, any human services in general, right? Criminal justice doesn't matter. Um, you are required to report, right? Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, you know, um, trying to satisfy, you know, an individual by uh, not telling or holding certain things in confidence related to self-harm or the harm of others, right? Um, you know, earlier we heard uh, Dana talk about the confidence, right, within therapy. Absolutely. You know, um, the limits of that is when, you know, a person is in danger of harming themselves or others, right? Children, the elderly, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? When we're talking about any situation when, you know, a person is, is at risk of or is currently harming themselves, you must act immediately, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is this is not one of those situations where, you know, you are going to try to take care of your baby and, and make this go away. No, um, this is not something. Right. And, and I think this is important. Right. Um, we try to do all that we can. But the parents, we have to realize that there are just some things we cannot do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we are powerless in certain situations. And this is one of them. Mm -hmm. You must immediately, and, and if you've been watching, you'll see numbers going across the bottom. Um, you need to be looking for crisis lines, hotlines, right, both national and local. Mm -hmm. um, calls need to be made immediately, immediately. Here in North Carolina, if you're in North Carolina, there's Alliance Behavioral Health. Uh, you can Google it, Alliance Behavioral Health. It has a 1-800 number. You can call that 2 or 3 a.m. It doesn't matter and they'll respond immediately, right? But you must respond immediately. Hmm. I think it's important. I tell people that you you act immediately and you have to take it serious. Like you have to take these threats serious. You can't say, like I said earlier, there's a, there's no age limit on it, right? You can't say, well, my baby is too young. Well, that's my baby. You have to take it in any type of threat at this point in time. You have to act immediately and you have to take it serious. Dana, Dana what you think? I, I agree. Um, you want to address it right away. And as a parent, I would be considering counseling immediately. Um, if I'm suspicious of it, then I'm going to create a safe a safe environment. Um, I'm not going to leave that child alone for long periods of time. And if I truly 
truly think that self-injuring is occurring, then I don't really want to leave them alone at all. Um, I am going to start the conversation um, and say, hey, let's, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm worried about you. This is what I see. Can you tell me what's going on? You know, can we talk about it? Um, tell me how you're feeling. I am probably going to seek the support of outside people that I trust. Um, and that can be hard, you know, in our community that's letting people in. It's more than just therapy. Sometimes you have to reach out to the school and maybe the school social worker, the school psychologist, or at least a coach or a favorite teacher can be aware. Hey, I think they're, they've been, you don't have to tell them every single detail, but you could say, Hey, I think they're going through something. I think they're having some emotional difficulty. Have you seen anything? Do you have any concerns? Are you able to support us? Um, if you have your church community or like I said, other, other community resources are um, going to be helpful, you know, as a parent um, and then take care of yourself as well. Um, so this show is not a substitute for therapy. You know, this is just <laughs> it's definitely not. like that's a disclaimer. None of, none of what we're saying here Thank is Thank a you. relationship. <laughs> um, so <laughs> take what we're saying and go get the support that you need as a parent, but then also advocate for your child. Um, and if people aren't, you know, you can go to your pediatrician if you're concerned about mental health with your child and they can give you a referral. Um, so you don't have to always think that, okay, I have to take them to a, a mental, a psych hospital. You can, you can actually just talk to your pediatrician and say, Hey, I'm concerned about some anxiety or some depression. What resources do they have? Um, even, and then of course, you know, our social media platforms are pretty helpful with finding resources. You just want to be careful, you know, of, of, you know, vet them appropriately, check them yeah. out. Yeah. And I'll, I'll recommend a couple of a couple of things too. therapy for black girls uh, is a great resource and it's a great place to go if you're looking for a therapist. And it's not just, you know, for for women. I've been up there and and search for therapists and, and, and look through some of the folks on there. Uh, and also a lot of a lot of times your employer will have what's called an EAP, right? The employee assistance program. A lot of times you can go through your employer and you can get uh, that e EAP program is absolutely free. And you can get connected with a therapist and you, you know, a lot of them have like three or four or five free sessions. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can just go to that particular therapist and they can help you out and you don't have to pay nothing. Like a lot of times we have our we have these these places of employment that have these services that we don't take advantage of. So I mm -hmm. think it's important to understand that those services are there. But again, like Colin said before, you have to do the work and go out and look for it. What are you going to say, Colin? Yeah. And, and just just one more. So um, this is. Um, by state, but it's a good resource, especially for males. It's called Whole Brother Mission, W-H-O-L-E, uh, Whole Brother Mission. Uh, it's ran by a good friend of mine, uh, doctoral student in counseling, and he started this nonprofit where um, it basically exists to connect black men, black boys to treatment. So uh, you can go in there. Uh, they have a whole host of partner counselors, right, to where you can get connected to treatment. It's called Whole Brother Mission. Google it. You'll see the website right there. Whole Brother Mission. Dope, dope, dope. So I, I want to end the conversation right there. But uh, this is something that we'll be talking about well beyond the month of March. This was just my effort and our effort to to bring this issue to the forefront, because, like I said earlier, when Colin posted it on social media, uh, I didn't even know it was a thing. Right. And then I did some research and, and, and found out that it is. Uh, I think the first of the month is Self-Harm Awareness Day. 
uh, and then the entire month is self-harm self and injury awareness month. So uh, this is a conversation that I want to keep going. I will uh, come back to you all and I'll be leaning on both of you for more uh, conversations like this. But I want to be sure that we have uh, this space that we can talk about these things. Dana, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. I just want to add social yeah. media. I know that we um, we as parents sometimes don't have the same connections as as youth. And, and, and this may be late in the conversation to throw this in here. But um, oftentimes kids have separate social media accounts that we can't see those those um, fake Instagrams and and ghost um, accounts. And there is a plethora of self injury on these platforms. Mm. Kids are posting it, they're talking about it, and they're leaving, you know, it's it's comments underneath it. So oftentimes that's, they're telling somebody, but you can't see it as a parent. So mm. having those conversations about social media, the boundaries of social media, what your expectations are, and, sh and for me, sharing in that experience, if you're on Instagram, I'm going to be your friend, you know, being able to see those things um, is going to be helpful to parents as well. So I just want, I, you know, it crossed my mind. Like I didn't want to leave that hanging. No, that's, that's dope. Cause a lot of these kids have what, what they call finsters and it's the mm -hmm. fake Instagram pages that, you know, us as parents, we don't necessarily always know about, but you got to go in as much as it hurts. You got to go in and check them cell phones. Like you got to mm -hmm. check those devices. You got to be, you know, do those pop-ups and you have to be, you, you know, you can sit down right there with them and say, give me your phone. And, and, and right. you know, so so it's nothing to hide. Like we we going through this phone together. I want to see what's up. Like what's what's popping. Like what are you doing on Twitter? What are you doing on Instagram? Like what what is all this? Like what what's happening? Um, right. So it's important to have that dialogue and that conversation with our young folks. So so we'll close out. I want you all to both uh, shout yourselves out, Dana. I'm not able to pull your graphic up, but I want you to definitely shout out because you're doing some big things in the in the Hampton Roads area. So I want everybody in the 757 to know what you're doing, and then uh, Colin, Colin, feel free to uh, let everybody know what you got going on and how they can connect with you all on social media uh, and all that. So Dana, go. Well, thank you. I am. Um excited to announce for the first time publicly that my mental health practice is going full time as of April the 1st. <laughs> Thank you so much. So um, Enamore Mental Health and Wellness LLC, Enamore means infused with love. And that is um, the focal point of my practice is that when you come in, you feel safe, you feel at home and you you have a place where you can meet your goals. And so, um, that is going full time. You can find my practice on Facebook. Um, don't have an Instagram yet. Um, and you can reach me 757-938-0498. Give me a call. Set up an appointment if you need to. If not, we can just connect to discuss mental health and, and resources in the community. So again, I'm not everybody's therapist, um, but I can definitely try to try to help you meet your needs in the community. So dope, dope. And she's very active in the Black People Parents and Facebook group. Uh, she's always posting really good content and she's always there uh, if we need her. So feel free to shoot her a message, add her as a friend, uh, just connect with her because she's really, really good people. Uh, Colin, what do you got going on, sir? Yeah, so uh, those of you who may not have heard in the uh, beginning, uh, Colin Adams, uh, Assistant Professor of Psychology at St. Augustine's University, uh, S-A-I-N-T, Augustine's University here in Raleigh. Um, you feel free to uh, look at our website, um, look at some of the information up there about myself. Uh, my LinkedIn uh, information is connected to my bio, which is on the website. 
Um, you can email me, uh, CB, B as in boy, CB Adams, A-D-A-M-S, at st-aug.edu. Uh, but if you do go to our website, st-aug.edu, you'll see my bio and you can access all my information. Um, I'm on Instagram, you know, and Twitter. Uh, I, I probably do Instagram more than Twitter, but uh, you can find me at uh, Colin Blake Adams, uh, C-O-L-I-N, Blake, B-L-A-K-E, Adams. And uh, yeah, I would love to connect with you all. So please uh, reach out to me, uh, email me. Uh, let's talk. This is something I'm passionate about and uh, excited to have been here tonight. Really, really blessed by this opportunity. Dope, dope, dope. Well, I thank both of you and hopefully we can, uh, let's do this again. Let, let's let's plan to do this again maybe in a month or so. May, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Well, yeah. there you go. There, there you have it. We will, we will set a date and we will have this conversation again because I think it's important uh, that we keep this conversation going, particularly in our community, particularly for our people. Uh, that we have this conversation about the importance of mental health and how we can kind of change the narrative uh, for generations and generations to come. So thank you all for watching. Thank you too for being here. We'll see you on the next one. All right, y'all. Peace. Bye. Bye, y'all.